The following is the keynote address from the 2013 symposium Dharma at Times of Need, the Interface of Chaplaincy and Ministry, hosted by the Institute of Buddha Studies and Harvard Divinity School in Berkeley, California on May 3rd, 2013. The keynote was delivered by Professor Seigen Yamaoka, Professor of Shin Buddha Studies at the Institute of Buddha Studies, and is titled Making Ministry Practical, Changing Roles in Japan. It's my pleasure and honor this evening to introduce Reverend Dr. Seigen Yamaoka. Yamaoka Sensei uh, was for so long that I thought it was eternal, um, the Bishop of the Buddhist Churches of America. Uh, and then I found out that this was not a lifetime position, although I'm sure that for him at sometimes it felt like it. Um, we're very fortunate that after retiring from the Oakland Buddhist Temple, he agreed to join us uh, here on the faculty of IBS. He is specialized in the application of Buddhist thought, of Shin Buddhist thought, uh, in practical ministry, in what is now called practical ministry, uh, rather much inventing the idea uh, in his doctoral dissertation. He is one of the people who, um, he does not have a PhD. He has graduated from Ryukoku University under the old European system, which means that he has a DLIT, which is a higher degree, in fact, than a mere PhD that some of us struggle through life with. Um, he, he is a more exalted being, and we're very fortunate uh, to have him speaking this evening. Thank you very much. I, I, I plan to keep this very loose because I have this bad habit. It's very difficult for me to prepare. Every time I try to prepare, I can't think of a thing until I get up here, hear some of you speak, and then I get the feel for, you know, what your intents are, your feelings are, and then something comes out. But then, before I, I begin, I'd like to just uh, preface my remarks by just simply saying that uh, the topic today is uh, making ministry practical, changing roles in Japan. And Kazuha actually introduced the whole process, the practical ministry. And uh, whether it was fortunate or unfortunate, I was in the process of helping to create that whole curriculum, which just started four years ago? Four years ago, right? Four years ago, as a master's course in, in Shin Buddhist Studies. But anyway, before I begin, I'd like to have you keep in mind three important points to consider. One, ministry and chaplaincy is a continuous personal journey, learning about yourself. That's the most important thing. It's not by yourself exactly. You're supported by many things and people, scholars, teachers, friends, patients. But they're all your teachers, and that's who you learn from. And it's a continuing learning process that never ends. So. You have never stopped learning. You never do. And the second is, in that journey, whatever you achieve, academics, whatever, doesn't matter, you must be able to, at a certain point, let it go. That's the hard part. 
to let it go. Because if you don't let it go, that's point three. <laughs> if you don't, if you, if you let it go, so you'll be able to hear, listen, learn, and grow continuously throughout your career. If you hang on to it, you've stopped learning. So you have to let it go. So with that, having shared that with you, uh, I, you know, the only way that I can talk about contemporary Shin studies is to talk about myself, which is the easiest thing to do, because I think I know myself, but a lot of times I don't think I know myself, the things I do and say. But it's important that I talk about what I went through, because my journey has been close to 50 years in the ministry, 44 of it in temples and the national headquarters, and, and the rest of it here at IBS. So that's close to 50 years. So I say 50 years in the ministry, and I'm out ready to retire, for sure. <laughs> this, is, this is the only way that I can clarify uh, the theme that we're dealing with this evening. Uh, I won't talk about the first half of my life up, up until the time of 1958 when I went to Japan to study, but I have to say something. I was a lousy child. <laughs> Terrible. I was mean to my mother. I was mean to my father. I, I, I just, I hated them because for the simple reason that they were Japanese. And the reason for that was World War II. World War, World War II, hard to talk, but World War II, and we were sent to camps. I didn't mind the camps so much because it was you know, isolated and we were all one ethnic group. But then when I came out, that's when the trouble started. I had to fight, always fight, fight, fight. Because if I didn't fight, I would be pushed aside you know, and I just have no identity, et cetera, uh, and people will walk all over me. And so, as small as I was, sixth grade, <laughs> I used to fight all the time. And because I had to fight all the time, I hated my parents. Because if it weren't for them, this is how we are as children. We're all like that. I hated them for being Japanese. They had nothing to do with it. What, what, what could they do? They were born in Japan. And so they immigrated here. So what could they do other than Japanese? But I hated them for that, being young. That's how stupid I was. That's how bad I was. And so for whatever reason, for whatever reason, as I finished uh, Fresno State in, in an area of study that you would never think that I would go into ministry. It was journalism, sports journalism. Now, how does that come into ministry of all things? Well, what happened was that I had a cousin, a distant cousin, who had an older brother who was a PhD student at Claremont, and he committed suicide. And so I, I went over because she was a distant cousin and we, we talked and talked and talked. She did all the talking, she did all the crying. All I did was listen. And then she made this weird statement. 
you would be a good minister. I said, what? I said, never talk about that ever again. Don't ever mention that because for one, I don't want to become a minister because I would have to go to Japan and study because at that time, we didn't have IBS. I would have to go to Japan to study. I had to learn the language. I have to eat Japanese food, <laughs> which I hated. Because all, you know, I grew up on hamburgers, <laughs> you know, and things like that. And so I, I really didn't want to go to Japan. And so I tried to run away. Because once I told my you know, cousin, don't say anything. But she did. And pretty soon there was this wave, because we're having shortage of English-speaking ministers in my time. That was a long time ago. And so they said, oh, he's going to be a minister, an English-speaking minister, so let's support him. And so I got this, all this pressure from behind, you know, moving me in that direction. And I was trying to evade it. So I joined the Navy to get out of it. <laughs> and then the Navy kicked me out because when I was young, I had rheumatic fever, and so I had a you know, rheumatic, you know, the heartbeat. And so they kicked me out. So then I came back. And then I started to go, uh, I decided, well, well, gee, what am I going to do now? And so uh, they wanted me to join the YBA. Learn I, I said, no, no, no. And I turned everything down. The only reason I joined the Young Buddhist Association in Central California was to play basketball. And I just played basketball. I didn't go to any meetings. I didn't go to any service. I, I wanted to stay away anything Buddhist. And I don't know what happened. <laughs> I, I ended up deciding, you know, because of all this pressure, you know, after I came out of the service, after three months, you know, I had no alternative. I, I couldn't escape. This minister, you know, lady, she was a, uh, her husband had passed away, so she started taking me to hospital visitation. All she wanted was a driver. But, you know, I went along, and, you know, things started to happen, and before I knew it, I was on a boat to go to Japan in 1958. I didn't want to go. But somehow I got caught in this big wave, and I went. I went against my father's wishes because he thought I was too spoiled. I, I couldn't live in Japan. I couldn't survive in Japan with the food and all that, being so spoiled. And my mother, my, my mother said, you know, you could go, uh, you can go, and then if, you, if it doesn't work out, come back, come back. So the day I was supposed to leave, she told me, whatever you do, you finish, and don't come back before you finish. I said, what happened to you? <laughs> What made you change your mind? And so, anyway, so I ended up going to Japan, and I had culture shock. It was compassion of Yukoku University to access, accept me into their master's course. Uh, I didn't have good grades at Fresno State. I was too busy doing all kinds of activities. A and I almost didn't graduate because uh, I had an English course, and. Uh, I was on the verge of an F. And if I didn't get a D, I wouldn't graduate. But I went through all the motions. Last minute, I got a D in English. And so I was able to, you know, <laughs> graduate. And so Yukoku University accepted me. And I think they must have realized that I wasn't too bright. 
But yet, out of the compassion, because of the lack of ministers in America, they decided to just accept me. So I was fortunate in that respect. When I went to Japan, uh, in that time, when you studied, there's only two courses you could take. Jodo Shinshu studies, or pure land, you know, Shin Buddhist studies, or Buddhist studies. Those were the only two. And somehow I got into Shin Buddhist studies. And the only reason I got into Shin Buddhist studies was because the person that I went with, Dr. Leslie Kawamura, uh, he, he just recently passed away, he told me, you know, this is a Jodo Shinshu school, so we better say Jodo Shinshu. So I said, okay. And so they put down Jodo Shinshu studies. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know Shinran that well because I didn't read Japanese. Because at that time in America, most of the Jodo Shinshu teachings were all done by the Japanese ministers and not so much English because we only had about four, five English-speaking ministers. So I got into Jodo Shinshu studies. And I stayed in Japan six years. I finished the master's in three because of the compassion of the teachers, they passed me along. <laughs> and then I said, after I graduated, they said, well, I, I didn't want to come home. So I, I begged the president of the school to let me stay. So he wrote a letter to the, the bishop here in America to let me stay. And because he was a, a, a bishop of VCA as well, uh, the eighth, uh, so the, the present bishop that I was under said, okay. And so I was able to stay another three years in the doctorate's course. Ha! I didn't know anything about the doctorate's course. Anyway, so I got in. So, so uh, you know, you get in because of, the, because of the compassion of the teachers and the university, because we were a small university at that time. It was only about 125 students. And so we, I got into the doctorate's course, and, uh, and during the time I was in the master's course, I met a real nice young man. His name is... Uh, Oka Ryuji. He became the head of the Shinshu studies class, and this was going to be very, very important for me down the road. But I, I got to uh, work with him because the president of the university started a translation center, Ryukoku Translation Center, and I became a part of it, though I didn't understand Japanese, so he was the intermediary to, to help with the translation with the advisor. I, so I studied for six years, uh, most of it doctrine, because in those days, you know, doctrine meant that you studied the objective truth of Jodo Shinshu. That's it, doctrine. You don't vary it. It's absolute other power or absolute Buddha's power. That's the doctrine based on Shinran's interpretation. And that's all I studied. And then just before I came home, my, my advisor said to me, you know, uh, once I got into the doctor's course, he said, you know, you come to my office once a week and I'll teach you doctrine because you don't have any clue what the doctrine is. And I said, you're right. And I was really happy that he said this because, you know, I didn't know. So he gave me a very specialized course in doctrine. But then he said, I'll teach you doctrine. But what you have to understand is that once you know you learn all this and you go back to America, you have to forget it. Not literally forget it, but put it aside. Because you're gonna work with people 
church members and also non-church members who want to study Jodashinsha and to work with them, you have to work with their interests, issues, and so forth. You cannot work with just Jodashinsha doctrine alone. I didn't understand it. Then I came back to America in the year, one year later, I found out I was, I was hitting this tremendous wall because all I was doing was talking doctrine. A and I was getting frustrated. I was almost ready to quit ministry. A and I couldn't quit because my father was always telling me, quit, 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 because you're not going to make it. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to quit, but I couldn't quit because, you know, then I, I would prove my father right. And I don't want to do that. And so I decided to take an alternate route. And that alternate route was to study religious education at the Pacific School of Religion here in Berkeley. And I entered the Masters of Religious Education course, which meant that I had to get all my doctrine training. And I had to learn Christian history, Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, and everything else, plus religious education. And I was heavily criticized for doing this by my peers because they thought that I should have studied more Jodo Shinshu. But I felt that Jodo Shinshu for me was kind of like a block because I didn't know what to do. I couldn't work with the younger people, so I didn't know what to do. So I thought maybe studying religious education will give me a different perspective. And so I entered the Pacific School of Religion while working at the Oakland Buddhist Church as a minister. So it was really hard trying to graduate with even a master's in religious education, you know, working with young people and doing all temple work, which I did. So it took me that long, four years, to graduate a two-year course. <laughs> See, that's how smart I was. Anyway, uh, at that time, uh, I met a number of interesting, very compassionate professors at PSR. You know, most of us hate to go, see, it was Christian versus Buddhist at that time. And so you don't go to the other side to study. That wouldn't be cool. That wouldn't be good. And so they wanted me to stay on this one side, you know, the pure line side, uh, my tradition. But I felt that I needed to go this way. And I did. And there was tremendous criticism from my peers. And, and that continued, to grow, continued all the way through uh, to my, my career in the uh, Buddhist ministry here in America as a Shin Buddhist priest. Because they said, I went over to the other side. But what I learned was that if you're afraid to cross over, you'll never learn what your own religion or what your teaching is all about. You have to compare something. And so I was able to do that. And I was able to say, a Christianity and Jodo Shinshu are not the same. There are subtle, important differences. But I was able to say that. If I didn't go, I would not know. And so then I began to study at PSR, and, and again, I began to learn the subtle differences. 
hoping to find some kind of gateway to break away from this doctrine thing that I was caught in and to find something a little different to understand the doctrines in a different way. Just as my professor told me to do, you have to find a way to transmit the teaching in a way that fits the needs of the people. And the only thing that I can think of was the practical side of it. But the practical side, I just didn't, it didn't dawn on me. I had to do something that was way out of line for me. A family came to me and said, can you tell my mother that she has cancer and she is going to die? In those days, the doctors didn't tell the patient what they had. They told the family, and so they put the burden on the family. And so the family, you know, they want to tell her, but then if she loses hope, they feel responsibility, so they didn't want to do that. So they came to me and said, can you tell my mother or our mother that she has cancer? And I said, I don't want to do that, but what if she dies? You know, I have to take the blame. I don't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. But they said, well, you're the minister, so you should go. And so eventually I, I broke down and went. And I had a beautiful conversation with her. At first, you know, we, we played this game. And then after that game was over, I, I was leaving, and I just simply said to her, next time we come, can we have an honest conversation? a real honest conversation, and she said, sure, I would like that. The next time I went to visit her, we started off the same way as before. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, can we have an honest conversation, please? And she said, oh, I forgot. And so she asked this very crucial question. She said, Sensei, I have cancer, yes? And I had to answer that question. I could have evaded it and gave all doctrinal reasons, but that wasn't the thing that she wanted. She wanted an answer to this one simple, honest question. Do I have cancer? And I said, yes, you do. And I explained, the children didn't want to tell you because the doctor said you would lose hope. And so they didn't want to tell you. And so, you know, she was getting mad at the kids, her family, because she wanted all kinds of help, you know, but then they weren't giving it to her because they were afraid of that question, that one question. And so they were trying to evade it. And so they weren't doing the things that they should have been doing. But then, after I told her, she began to realize, she says, oh, my children, you know, she was, before that, she was complaining about her children. They didn't understand her. They weren't helping her. And they said, oh, they're good children because they were always thinking about me by my not telling me. And she really began. There was a transformation that I, happened that I didn't quite understand. She was going from complaining to gratitude, just like that. And I didn't understand it. I didn't know what that meant. How was that possible? And that began my career in studying and trying to find out how that transformation happened.
and it took my, me my whole career to do that. I was interrupted for 15 years, as Dr. Payne told you. I was at, at the BCA headquarters, and so I couldn't do the studies that I wanted to do. But during the time that I was in ministry in Oakland and Stockton, I dealt with a lot of people who were dealing with cancer, dying issues, and all that. And I learned from them more than me doing anything for them. I learned from them what ministry is. And hopefully, by relating these things to you, that you can relate it to chaplaincy as well. And as I began to do that, something formulated in my mind. There must be a way that I can explain that transformation process that happened. I didn't know what it was. She was not heavily into doctrine, but she used to attend services. And she used to listen to the Dharma, the message. And so somehow she internalized it. And when I told her the truth, that she has cancer, and she, she doesn't have much more to go, and she realized that, then she changed. The transformation happened for her. And she thanked her children. The children became closer to her because she knew the truth now. And the family worked together with the illness that she had. But she had one concern, the youngest child, a son. He was having a little bit of difficulty. He was very close to his mother. And then she died. And he was at a loss. And so she, he was coming to Dharma school, which is the Sunday school version of the Buddhist church's <laughs> Sunday services. And he, he came to the temple. And uh, he was in the class. And they were going to have this uh, Hanamatsuri, or the flower festival, the birth of the Buddha day celebration. And so they all had a project to do. And so they worked on the project, uh, the golden chain. And so this son drew a picture to express, you know, the last line goes, what, is, what was the last line? I can't even remember now. <laughs> May all beings be happy, uh, peace and happiness or something to that effect in the golden chain. And so he drew this picture, a rectangular box with half cut and her, his mother pictured with flowers around her face. And he wanted to present this. And everybody panicked. Everybody panicked. We can't have that at this service. It'll be too, too, you know, too hard on everybody. It's supposed to be a happy, it's a Buddha's birthday, you know? You, you gotta make sure that it's bright and happy. And then you got this. And so they were gonna turn it down, so they came to me and I asked, but this is a real life experience. It may mean something for this child to do this within the theme that, that he had. You know, may all things be happy, you know, and, uh, in the golden chain. And so he got up, and the last phrase was, uh, let's see, uh, may, all be, uh, may there be peace and happiness, or something to that effect. That was the last line. And he proudly put up the picture, 
with a casket, flowers. And he pronounced, he said his word, may all beings be happy and have peace, just like my mom. And there was dead silence in the audience, dead silence. No one, no one knew what to make of it, you know? Here is this little boy, and he has this picture. But somehow, in his own mind, he had resolved, because of the way his mother showed her compassion, because of the, she realized the truth, he was able to internalize that and make it a very positive thing for himself. Otherwise, he would have been, I would think he would have been a mess. And we needed to make sure that he had the stage to do that. So these are the kinds of experiences that I had. You know, the, the, the trans, I, I learned so much from that boy, you know. So it's, I always feel that I'm learning more than I'm giving. I'm really learning more than I'm giving. And so I started to formalize this. And for my, I went back to PSR for the DMIN program, and it had to do with this process that I was trying to think of. How do you relate the workings of the Dharma in simple terms? In simple terms, which technically I called it the six aspects. And I wrote about it, and it's all the workings of the Dharma. What does it do? What does it do in simple terms? You know, we hear words like compassion, wisdom, and nobody explains, what does it do? No one explains that. You have to learn it. And so in, in order to have, have them better understand their whole, whole experience, I, I felt that it was important to identify it in a way that it connected to their lives. And they could see the Dharma working in this way. And then, I did that and I, I publicized it and then, but then the only problem that I had was that I was only talking about the Dharma side and I was criticized by saying, you know, all you're talking about is the conclusion. You're only talking about the conclusion of what the Dharma does. What happens to the person? How, are, how is the person to understand this thing called Dharma? What does it do in their lives? And the biggest question all of the young people had, which I wasn't answering, is how does it relate to me? How does it work for me? What is my life like? You know, explain that. And so I had to go through this whole thing, and I developed what we call the six characteristics, six characteristics of human life uh, condition process. And we connected it all up somehow. And, and that was... And I talked it over with Professor Oka, who's uh, trying to establish a whole new trend in Shinshu studies in Japan. And he says, you know, can you write it up for me so that I can, we can look at it and maybe use it as a kind of study so that maybe we can create this thing. And my whole theory was that we needed to establish within America a Shin Buddhist religious education studies. Because everything up until that time from Japan was all academic. And you know, academics, especially in an institution, if it's doctrine, you don't deviate. If you begin to deviate, if it's absolute other power or absolute other, 
You know, you can't deviate by saying, well, this is what we do. Uh, this is what we're experiencing. You, it's, you can't say it. And, and, and in Japan, I said, how come you don't write this if you feel that it's very important? He says, I can't. I said, why? It's academic suicide. And it is. You could be ostracized for being a heretic. So he says, you're from the West, so you can write anything you want. <laughs> and if you write anything you want, then, you know, it's okay. And so, so but I was at, at NBCA at that time, and so I couldn't do anything until I retired from uh, the office of, of uh, the bishopship, and I came back to the Oakland Buddhist Church, and then I started to work on it. And it all had to do with the experiences that I had with the patients, the people that were going through all these kinds of emotional ups and downs and how that transformation process happened. I don't know how it happened, why it happened. I have no idea. But I, I just knew that something happened because there was a shift from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. There was a shift. And to me, the other, the other centeredness comes from the Dharma. That's the way I understood it. And the, if the shift was not made, it's all self-centered. It's all self-centered. And so I, have, so I wrote this dissertation, and I submitted it. And I didn't think it would pass because, you know, it's an academic institution. And I didn't think it would pass. So I, I submitted it. We worked on it submitted it. And he became, Professor Oka became my lead advisor for the dissertation. And he said, okay, you know, I understand what you're doing here. You're talking about process. And it's true, I was talking about process. You see, in Japan, in academic study, there's no consideration for process at that time. In America, we had process theology, but you know, theology doesn't want to deal with process. You know, you, they only want to deal with theology. No different in Shinshu studies. You know, we don't want to deal with process because that's person-centered. And if it's person-centered, it's heresy. And, and there's a history behind this. A long ago, about oh, 500 years ago, longer than that, when Jodo Shinshu was beginning to spread, there were priests who were doing counseling. They didn't call it counseling at that time because priests knew their members really well. And so they, they knew the sociological implications, the psychological implications, the economic implications, and they would guide them guide them through their experiences, their experiences to the realization of their, if you want to call it the faith or the changing and, and thing, but to come to this understanding that the Dharma and they were one. And they, were, they worked it through the life issues of the people. But he was considered a heretic. And so, what happens after that is everything becomes institutionalized and we have this one hierarchy called academic studies. In America, 
it's about, it's about 200 years ago they started religious education, and that's what I studied, religious education at PSR. But in Japan, they didn't have it. To have religious education, there's a problem. When I made that proposal to have religious education studies in America and in Japan, if possible, could it be? They said it's impossible because the word religious education has a whole different meaning with this, all its definition. You can't deal with an educational process in religion. It has to be an academic presentation of any religion to be fair to all religions. If you're teaching religious education, you're teaching the history of religious education, not anything that goes in between that. If you're from a school like Ryukoku University, private, you could do some of it, some of it. But you have to stay within your own tradition. You can't go outside of your own tradition. That's how strict it was. And so I come in with this cra crazy paper on religious education studies, which is absolutely impossible to deal. You know, this, it, it's not a field that they ever thought of. It's not exactly true. You know, there were priests and scholars who were thinking in terms of religious education or in terms of practical studies way long time. But they got beaten down by the scholars who said, this is the way it is, the absolute truth. And this is what we have to rely on. And so, much to my surprise, it passed. It passed. And I, I, I didn't understand why it passed, because I didn't think it was going to pass, because I was talking about something thoroughly different. I was trying to introduce a kind of a, a religious educational process in the study of Shin Buddhism. No one else has ever done it before. And I thought to myself, gee, Professor Oka used me. <laughs> I, I felt that you know he, he had this agenda going in his head that he wanted to create something while he was the head of the, uh, Shin Studies in Japan. And he gathered a group of people and they worked on it and they created it. And that's called practical Shin Studies. They can't call it religious education studies. And so I graduated in 2002 uh, with, well I took the doctor's course and I finished the residency and all that. And that was a long, long time ago. And normally the process is if you're going to get a, a, a lit D, you have to teach. But I was in the temple. I, I didn't teach classes. But every time I go to Japan, he would set up a course that I could teach to g just keep me in the flow of things. And so that's what happened. And then uh, when he asked me to write it, he said he'll be my committee head. And so because he had an agenda that I didn't know about. <laughs> and so then we got in and it passed. That was in 2002. In 2005, the book was published because with the lit day, you have to publish. And so I, I published a, an English version and a Japanese version. And the, the Japanese version became the text of practical Shin studies. 
But it, it doesn't go into the hands of the students because it costs almost $60 for one book. And that's huge, you know, for a student. And so it, it had no practical purpose. And so after the program started in about 2000, and I think it started about 2009, somewhere in there, somewhere in there, yeah. Uh, I was asked to come back in 2011 uh, to evaluate the course progress. And uh, so they gave me a scholarship, the Numata Scholarship, uh, to study for one whole month in Japan. And I went to Ryukoku University, and I took all the courses. I attended every practical Shin study courses plus the academic courses because I had to make sure that we, we kept everything in perspective. And so then uh, I did that. And as I attended the classes, I found something very, very important, and I always made sure that I made this very clear to the students, that they were doing all kinds of things that, you know, Akasa showed you, you know, they were doing counseling, or tele telephone counseling, prison counseling, uh, all kinds of different things. And they were reporting on all the activities and their studies as to what they were doing. And this is something that, Shin Buddhism as a doctrine uh, did not do. They were going out into the community, working with people, understanding what was happening in the community, understanding what people were going through. And I noticed all that, but then I also said, wait a minute, if they don't connect that up to Shinnan, I felt. It is not practical Shin studies. So I always ask question in the class to the students, where is the teachings of Shinnan in this? Where is the teachings of Shinnan in this? And says, please consider it because it's very, very important. And on the other end, the academic side, I would say to the great, you know, the, the, the doctrinal studies group, Shinshu's, the study of doctrine is very important. There's no question. Without that, you can't have practical Shin studies. You cannot have it. But without practical Shin studies, doctrinal studies is stagnant. So you need to work together. And that's very crucial. And so, but still, you know, doctrinal studies has been there a long time. Practical Shin studies is just four years old, you know? And, and so I talked to a, a great scholar of uh, Shin studies and I said, uh, I said, I said, what do you think about, you know, uh, practical Shin studies? He says, no good, no good. All they do is go out, go out, go out. And they don't know what they're doing. They don't know, you know, what Shinnan, they don't, they don't even relate it to Shinnan or anything like that. They just go out and do. And, but then it was very important. It was very important. These are grad students. They took courses in Shin studies. And so they came in. And so they were doing it. But then I asked them to make sure. So you have to respect practical Shin studies. You have to respect it. Vice versa, the practical side has to respect the academic side. And so my life has been very, very strange. 
it's been really weird. Uh, from a not so bright student, I've come this far. Uh, I, I've been a minister, you know, I've been in the, the teaching side of it now for only four years or five years. I don't remember. Uh, time flies so fast nowadays. And so I don't remember too much. But I do remember some of the cases that I worked on, and I like, do I have time? I have five minutes? Ooh, five minutes, okay. Where are we going after this? Oh, <laughs> okay. I'll make sure we end in five. Okay. This is a story about a young boy named uh, Alexander. I've told this story in class before, and he was a very active young boy. He was the third son of this family. And uh, he, uh, one day, he had this kind of weird look, and the family was, became very much concerned, and they took him to the doctor, and they, they found he had eye cancer, cancer of the brain, and it was making it very deformed. But, you know, the, the good thing about it is, uh, it, may, it may have been hard for him, but doctors nowadays, they tell you what you have. They pull the family in together and they tell you what you have. You know, it wasn't a secret anymore. You know, they tell you what you have. So that the, the family knows, and the family, what they're in for, they understand that. And then the child knows, so that the child knows what he has to go through. And so they all agreed to go through therapy. And it was a horrendous thing that he had to go through. I don't know if I would have been able to go through it. But he used to come to Dharma school, and he used to love Dharma school. And, and so once he got sick, he couldn't come to Dharma school anymore because they didn't know. He was taking all kinds of medication. And, and you know, when you take a lot of medication, you up things. And when they up it, you know, it has a horrendous smell to it. And uh, but I, always, I used to go visit him because of the fact that you know, he was a Dharma school student and he loved Dharma school. And so we would go. One time I went and uh, he, he, he was having this problem. So his brother was trying to clean up because the mother couldn't do it because I was there talking to you know. And so uh, he said, uh, I could hear him talk. And he's apologizing to his brother. Gee, I'm sorry that you, know, you have to do this because it's really hard for you. And, and I really am sorry. I really am. So that, I felt that he had come to some kind of transformation. I didn't know exactly what, but there was some kind of transformation that happened. But I'm not sure what. And that, and he had come to some kind of understanding of himself and what he was going to go through. Then we visited another time and we gave him one of these, but just for the wrist, you know. Because he was a child. hands together, you know, palms together like this, and he said, Nam Mami Davutu. And he said, I wish I could say this at the temple. I really wish I could say, say it at the temple. So I said, you know, Alexander, you know, the time will come when you will be able to say it at the temple. The time will come. You have to be patient. You have to work with what you have. And so as things got worse, and he, he took everything that new things that came out, but it didn't work. It just didn't work. And he knew that he was coming to the, that 
time was short. And so he began to be uncertain about things. So he began to question his mother, what is it to die? The mother panicked. He's asking me, what is it to die? So what does she do? She emails me. Alexander asked this question, what is it to die? Can you come over and talk to him and explain what is it to die? And I agonized. I'll be over the next morning, and I couldn't sleep that night because I didn't know what to say to a tent. You know, after all these kind of experiences that I went through, every person is new. It's different. So you can't have something, you know, all your experiences and cluttered up in here, and you think you have the answer. It's all new each time. So I went there in the morning after agonizing over it, and I didn't have an answer. So then I got there, and he, he greeted me at the door. I started talking. And pretty soon, he, start, he started talking about everything else other than the one question he's supposed to ask. So the mother got upset at him. She said, Alexander, ask Sensei the question, because he's busy. <laughs> he's busy, so ask the question. And I said, OK, Mom, OK, OK. And then he asked me, what is it to die? I could have, you know, I gave him all kinds of, because it's impermanence, it's, et cetera, et cetera. But that is not an honest answer. It says, Alexander, to be truthful, I don't know what is it to die. But we are all sure that we will one day die. And then he said, you know, but I said, instead of thinking about that, Alexander, can you think, what can you do? Think of something that you can do. And because I think he had that earlier transformation, something clicked in his head. And he said, instead of thinking about dying, I'm going to think about living. That's what I'm going to think about, just living. Now, this is a 10, 11 year, he's 11 by then, but he's an 11 year old boy. And he says, I'm going to think about living. And then he said that, and the mother got all upset. She says, Alexander, you, do you know what you're saying? He says, yes, mom, I know what I'm saying. So don't worry about it. And so you know, he's, he's telling his mother to back down, back down. <laughs> and so Alexander says, what is it that, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just concentrate on living and, and, and to do all I can to live. And I said, Alexander, you know, but he said, what can I do? What can I do? You know, I, I asked this question because I, I wanted to, I didn't want to die by myself. If I am to die, can I be with my parents? He said he wanted to sleep with his parents because he won't be alone if he died, because he didn't know when he was going to die. He didn't. So he wanted to be with his parents. So I said, that's okay, Alexander, but do one more thing before you go to bed. Thank your parents for what they did for you that day. Thank your brothers for what you did, and thank anyone else that you want to thank for what you received this day before you go to sleep. And he says, that's what I'll do. Thank you very much. And I left. He came to Dharma school one time only. 
and that was, so we have a Halloween parade in the Buddhist temple, you know, and all the ghosts and goblins come, <laughs> and they have all kinds of activities playing, and so he came. He was really thin, really thin, and he came. And after, I could see him at the service as I was talking. His eyes were bright, you know, and he had a smile on his face. And I could hear his namlamida, which was an expression of gratitude in, in Shin Buddhist terms. A and I could hear it very clearly. And after it was over, he went downstairs and he did all the activities. As frail as he was, he did all the activities that every other child did. And then, uh, and a couple of months later, th that took a tremendous toll on his life. And a couple of months later, he passed away. The service at the Oakland British Church was huge. A lot of young kids, because while he was living, he made lots of friends, lots of friends. And they all came, classmates, everyone came, adults came. And I told the story as I told you. But there was one little thing that was missing that I didn't know about. And we found that out when the mother told me after the funeral that after I talked to him, they had this game, the mother and Alexander. And Alexander would always ask, Mom, how much do you love me? <laughs> you know, how much do you love me? He says, around, she would say, around the world and back. That was her answer. And she asked Alexander, how much do you love me? To eternity and back. To eternity and back. So there was something that he understood that she didn't understand what he meant, but it was bigger than hers. That's all she understood. That, but to me, because of the doctrines that I studied, it, it is like saying that he will always come back to be with her and to comfort her just by having her think of him. I just met her about two weeks ago and I asked her, how are you doing? And she says, I'm doing fine. Do you think of Alexander? And she says, yes. Every time I think about it, he comes back to me. And she has resolved the loss. And, and this is the kind of thing that all of us as chaplains and ministers must do. But as I said in the beginning, you know, it's, it's a growing process that all of us must go through no matter how long. There's no end to what we can learn and how much we are helped to understand the flow of life, even though it changes, constantly changes, that we always learn something. That's very, very important. And the other thing is, what we learn is that, that though there is a separation of life and death, if you have an understanding, it's not that crucial. There is a way of kind of transcending, transforming. Because we've all lost someone. And we all feel this loss. And we don't know how, it, how to deal with it. And so you have to think in terms of, as you think about them, they're coming back to you, to guide you, to help you throughout your life as you grow with each experience as a chaplain and as a minister.
I always have this one thought that my father always used to tell me, because he wasn't, he always thought that I was not too sharp, <laughs> not too bright, but spoiled. So he would always used to say, you're stupid, you're stupid. And I hated that because, you know, I didn't think I was so stupid, but ever since, you know, all the way through life, through college, and before he passed away, he always said, stupid, stupid, stupid. And I resented it. But now I'm beginning to understand that it wasn't that so much. He was concerned that if I remained stupid, I would not learn from life. I have to transcend that image of, from the self to really hear what he was saying really meant. And I'm beginning to understand it took me this long. And so that's why I'm saying to you, ministry and chaplaincy is a continuing process of growth, and you have to be open-ended to hear, to listen, and understand, and grow through each experience, through each moment. Thank you very much.